0: Welcome to Navarra FM. My name is Juliette Jakes, and today I am joined by Owen Hatherley and Ash Sarkar to talk about British culture and politics in the 2000s. So, taking us back to the new Labour era. Ash, of course, needs no introduction to regular Navarra listeners because or I watchers work here. because she works here. Uh, I will say that she did achieve my childhood dream of yelling the words. I'm a communist, you idiot, at Piers Morgan on national television, uh, something that has earned her my eternal respect. Owen Hathley, I'm sure, is also familiar to many of our listeners. He is a commissioning editor at Jacobin Magazine and has published 15 books. Incredibly prolific. So, Owen and Ash, welcome to the show. Hello.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, I'm going to introduce the topic through an article that was published in Tribune Magazine in 2020. Uh, and this caught my eye, not just because it's a really good distillation of the relationship between politics and media in the 2000s, which is, of course, a decade in which the new Labour government were in power from beginning pretty much to end, but because it was written by Jason Ockendy, who I think in the year 2000 may not have started primary school yet. Um, and I found it really fascinating that someone who wasn't really there at the time could get such a good grasp on the nature of British like pop culture, quite a lot of things that seem quite ephemeral now. Um, he opens up by talking about the last Queen's speech before the 2001 general election, when Tony Blair scolded the uh, cap-wearing, 14-pint-a-day-drinking leader of the opposition, William Hague, uh, by telling him that, you are the weakest link, goodbye, uh, which was a cringeworthy reference to the BBC uh, quiz show, The Weakest Link, which had started in August 2000, uh, apparently also a reference to William Hague's tendency to summarise his policies in six words uh, or less. The Weakest Link, for those who don't remember, uh, was a quiz show hosted by Anne Robinson, who's already a household name on the BBC, for hosting consumer programmes and um, I think points of view as well. But basically, the main selling point of the show was the fact that it had structured into it a kind of anti-solidarity, a, um, a structure in which contestants were invited to screw each other over. But the main part of its appeal, really, was the way that Anne Robinson talked to her guests. I remember watching this at university, just stoned out of my gourd, and uh, being you know, quite freaked out by how unpleasant the show was, and how unpleasant she was to her guests. But... Clips have gone around more recently, going back to the program, uh, for example, where uh, Anne Robinson has a contestant who's a single mother to three boys. Um, So she notes this and then asks, how many ASBOs, antisocial behavior orders, how many of your three boys have got tags on their ankles? Are you on benefit? And you didn't go gay, did you? After forcing the contestant to reveal the details of her broken down marriages, and Jason says that you know this degradation and intrusive reproach of this woman of a demonstrably lower social class uh, wasn't apropos of nothing, and he says this was typical of the sort of benefits bashing of the New Labour years under Tony Blair. So I'll carry on, sort of dipping back into that article as we as we carry on speaking. Um, I think it's important to note this is summer two thousand, so it's before September 11, eleventh, two thousand and one, and the war on terror, which I think heralds quite a big. Political and cultural shift, but it's a shift that was already starting to happen. so Owen, you are my age, so you will remember turning eighteen at the uh, end of the last millennium mm-hmm. and um and experiencing a lot of this culture kind of okay. firsthand as a as an as an adult uh, Ash, you were um significantly younger than us, I think eight or nine at this time.
1: yeah, so I was eight years old when at the turn of the millennium.
0: Maybe, Owen, I'll just sort of turn to you first. Um, What are your sort of memories of the cultural climate of this time
2: and how it related to the political weather in Britain? Um, Main feeling was one of just immense disappointment, really. I think that was the, the, the main thing I remember from that time, that, you know, there's sort of years of the year 2000 is going to be, you know, sort of exciting and futuristic. And, you know, there's going to be amazing culture and amazing buildings and amazing films. And you get there and, you know, what you get is 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 Coldplay. And, you know, obviously, there were exceptions to that. And, you know, there were a lot of amazing R&B records at the time and so forth. But by and large, it was a real, you know, there was this enormous feeling of sort of cultural disappointment. And, and the, the, the kind of politics of that, I suppose, was one of being told constantly, this is as good as it's going to get. This is, as good. you know, there's a Labour government, you know, we're not actively, you know, kind of kicking people in the heads. You know, that, that sort of ostentatious cruelty of the Thatcher years seemed to have gone, although, as we'll discuss, obviously, it, it, it returns in a weird way. You know, a lot of the kind of the the sort of ostentatious bigotry was sort of gone. There was a lot of money sloshing into public services, although it was going into, you know, kind of PFI hospitals and schools that fell down and and cladding on tower blocks. And, you know, that was flammable. But, you know, it it was happening. And so there was this kind of sense that, you know, if you're complaining, there's something a bit wrong with you. If you weren't doing particularly well in that time, you know, if you weren't um, working at a think tank or Chris Martin or, you know, working for Endemol or what have you, it was very, very difficult to believe in this thing. But you were treated a little bit as if you were a loon, if you were discontented.
1: It wasn't all cold play though. I mean, the early 2000s is when you get, I think, the most exciting genre of music that uk has ever produced which is of course grime and what's so different about grime from uk garage is that uk garage was always sort of slyly american there was always the sort of like little hint of an american accent to it and there was also a lot of cross-pollination between garage producers and american r&b producers like dark child for instance whereas grime comes along the sort of center of Gravity in London shifts from South London to East London and it sounds completely, completely different. And I know we're going to talk about things like Asbo's and the criminalisation of youth a lot. And when you go back to those early grime records, Dizzy Rascal's first album, um, you know, thinking about, you know, crazy titch or scratchy These guys sounded like kids who'd been left to fend for themselves, and had put together everything they'd learned from like hanging around in parks or in street corners, and everything they learned from their like music GCSE lessons. And it was, I think, hugely original. Now that may as well have been happening on a different planet to the world of Endemol or Primrose Hill, but for for me, it's so different from that sort of late 90s cool Britannia in that it didn't really want, at that point anyway, it did change a bit later on, it didn't want recognition Mm -hmm. from people in power. It didn't want to be invited to like a Downing Street reception. It had a completely different goal and a completely different sound.
0: Well, this is a nice place, I think, to just um, tip our hats to the great music critic Neil Kulkarni. Sadly, like died a week or two ago, Um, and he shared his reflections on the end of Melody Maker magazine round about this time, um, with its notorious cover of a Craig David lookalike sitting on a toilet, coming from this position of this sort of like white indie kid supremacy. And you know, even though I was like very much a white indie kid at that time, you know. I am very, you know, stultified in the middle class. I really remember seeing that cover and just thinking, like, no, that's that's really
2: unpleasant and really off. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very defensive, of Craig David, because um, I went. filming was a banger. Well, I went to the same FE college as Craig David. I was in the same year as Craig David, and um, my dad slightly knew his dad. Oh my god! I, I, can't. You know, we weren't we weren't mates, but Wait, there was you hear a kind about of the like... other
0: famous Southampton man, Rishi Sunak. You know? <laughs> Thank you.
2: <laughs> I like to concentrate on Craig. Craig and Fair. Ken Russell. Yeah. But the, the thing that I thought was, was, was very noticeable about Grime, I mean, it was, it was very, very exciting in, the, in those first few years. But the, everything that had happened just before it, sort of UK garage and then becoming to the thing that then almost sort of becomes Grime around so Solid crew, is that they all expected to be pop stars and they all thought they'd go on top of the pops and they all thought they'd sell loads of records. And then Grime happens and they don't. I know, or, or at least when they, decide, when they do, they have to completely change their sound like Dizzy Rascal and Wiley do when they have their hits. Um, so that kind of thing of like, you do a sort of, which had happened for about 10 years, I think at that point, that a sort of weird underground thing happens and then suddenly it ends up, you know, on the TV and on the radio all the time. Didn't happen in the same way. It was kind of kept underground in a way that I think was, you know, rooted a little bit and kind of like, oh, this is spoiling the party.
1: Well, I mean, because you did have some music tv play for some of the boy in the corner tracks i mean fix up look sharp obviously was really really massive but for that you know first wiley uh album where you're hearing stuff like ice rink you're not seeing that on music tv like a bit later you get a bit of channel U and stuff Mm. like that but it's not it's really about pirate radio so you know you're, you're thinking about deja vu as being like the kind of archetypical um pirate radio station where the most like legendary clashes for instance um, that's you know all taking place like at the top of a a tower block and I think it does really fit into the political themes of the time because this was exactly the class of people and the kind of people who were accused of holding back the sort of middle-class Blairite revolution with their you know criminal deviance and their lack of, of willingness to integrate to a set of social norms, their lack of desire to get on, as it were, and their sort of pride in being where they were from, which was working class East London.
0: I think, you know, that's an interesting place to to loop back to, you know, a sort of mainstream culture that is still like pretty white dominated and certainly a lot of its cultural gatekeepers are. Um, tying back to what you were just sort of saying, Owen. I mean, um and and yeah you know this this sort of trenchant hatefulness in television in particular and it's 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 sort of not something that's necessarily led by the technology um, you know this is very much a time when five channel television is still pretty hegemonic but you can identify a voyeurism and unpleasantness and anti solidarity that runs through uh, some of the programs that Jason mentions in his piece, so like The X Factor, Big Brother, Super Nanny, Wife Swap, The Jeremy Kyle Show, uh, something called Fat Families, which is the only one that I don't remember. Um, and there's something about Miriam, which was a um, a game show on Sky TV where six straight men were invited to woo a woman called Miriam, who was like later revealed to the quote-unquote winner um, as a... Um, transsexual woman who had not had lower surgery. Um, So, you know, I think through all of those programs, you can identify a level of cruelty. Um, And I found it interesting that going back to a Charlie Brooker article on the Jeremy Kyle show from uh, October, 2005, um, he describes Kyle's show, which had replaced uh, Trisha's talk show on ITV. And Brooker writes, uh, and I'm very struck by the cruelty of Brooker's own writing here. He writes that the key word in the official description of the Jeremy Kyle show is confrontational because Jeremy's USP is that he's unafraid to hurl abuse at his hapless idiot guests. So when some greasy, bi-toothed, boss-eyed scumball is guffawing about how many times he's shoved it up his girlfriend's mother, Kyle shouts something like, you amoeba of a man. The audience applaud, the chav is humbled, and Jeremy seems secretly pleased. So, you know, you can kind of argue that, you know, Brooker is using that kind of language to capture the kind of sneering class hatred that runs through the show. But it's pretty ambiguous as to whether or not he shares the kind of sentiment or, you know, shares the kind of contempt for the people that are appearing on the show as well as for the, you know, um, structure of the enterprise itself. And I was just sort of quite struck by how, you know, something, you know, someone like Charlie Brooker, who, you know, at that point pretty adjacent to some sort of counterculture, you know, was working with Chris Morris on Channel 4's Nathan Barley at the time, which of course is a pretty savage satire of the sort of stupidity and vapidity of um sort of shortage media culture. I just found that quite striking to, to revisit that and and finding that the piece the
2: piece itself reads much worse than I remembered it. Well, I think there's, you know, the, 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 the roots of a lot of this very, very kind of cruel and nasty culture and a lot of the sort of countercultural things you mentioned, you know, the, the things like Brass Eye where you, you know, you take a kind of public figure and you make them say something incredibly stupid. There's quite a short pipeline from that to, you know, you take a member of the public and you make them say something incredibly stupid. But I think a lot of this culture, um, I think it one of the more interesting things about it is more about what it enables to happen. And, you know, particularly in the sense that I think it laid a lot of the ground for austerity and why austerity mm. was accepted. And I think there's, a, there's that line from, I think it's from Paul Benjamin, of like, every epoch dreams the one to follow. Mm. And, you know, the culture of the 2000s is full of, like, you know, kicking poor people on, you know, in, in a kind of metaphorical sense. And I think that then a couple of years later sort of shades quite easily into the actual kicking that's been happening for the last 14 years.
1: One of the things which was really striking about the language used by Labour politicians at the time is that they had nothing but disdain for people who they were always accused of being too soft on. So a Blair minister... Uh, said, I think, in the presence of Andrew Fisher, who later becomes one of Jeremy Corbyn's uh, policy advisors, you know, I just want these people to learn that there's more to life than the journey from the bedroom to the living room sofa every day. Because that's what they thought of benefits recipients. Mm -hmm. And I think that the ideological backdrop to that whole idea was, one, a complete and wholesale uh, adoption of Thatcherism, and two, the idea that there's no such thing as a working class anymore, right? You've got a very, very big middle class. You've got, you know, upwardly mobile strivers. And then what you have is this sort of, you know, gristle of lumpen proletariat left behind of people who just cannot possibly bring themselves to integrate into society because of things like intergenerational welfare dependence, which was a myth, right? The idea of intergenerational welfare dependence is, you know, a load of horseshit, as any sociologist worth their salt will tell you. But- That was a very sticky idea and I think that that narrative is the thing that you see seeping into all of these different television shows, whether it's Big Brother or The Weakest Link Um, and I think making a virtue of that kind of nastiness because I think that that was seen as how you demonstrated yourself as a discerning person because mm. it wasn't just Anne Robinson. No, there was Trinian Susanna. Yeah, whose job it was was to take you know middle-aged women into a three hundred and sixty hall of mirrors and you know jab at their love handles and bellies and go look at how disgusting you are. You had the various. You know, Nasty, Nasty Nick, Nasty Nigel, Simon Cowell, Gordon Ramsay, you know, their jobs. And the reason why they were sort of, I mean, less so Nasty Nick was a Big Brother contestant, but Nasty Nigel, certainly. Their job. Who was
0: Nasty Nigel?
1: Remind me. I think he was a pop idol judge. Right, okay. Um, So he was sort of Simon Cowell before Simon Cowell. Um, Their job was to sort of, you know, sit there and roll their eyes and sort of, you know, confront these poor hapless contestants with uh-huh. you know what they really look like do you know what you really look like yeah. up there and i think that that is something which filtered down from the sense of um you know everyone's a striver apart from utter scum yeah those are the two categories
0: i mean ash and i could probably talk about this for hours but i won't do this to owen because he gets enough enough of it uh, elsewhere um, but I really remember how venal and unpleasant like football and footballers were at this mm. point. Um, you know, Joey Barton being a very prominent figure, for example. But we won't go too much into that. Instead, I will bring up um another slightly forgotten unpleasant game show because the host is interesting, and that was uh, Shafted with Robert Kilroy Silk. Um which go was on, do
1: the do do the do the line.
0: The line shafted. <laughs> um That's the only thing I remember is that, you know, you were really encouraged, you know, even more than The Weakest Link to kind of like screw over. um,
1: It was a bit like Traitors without any of the warmth.
0: Yeah, or wit or, you know, anything. But, you know, Kilroy Silk was obviously a um, a TV chat show host, was involved with the UK Independence Party. Ex-Labour MP. Ex-Labour MP. um, Very interesting figure and very intriguing figure in this sort of like ongoing enmeshing of politics, media, culture, and entertainment, uh, and all of these things sort of becoming ever more intertwined.
2: It's sort of Nigel Farage John the Baptist, I think. Yeah. uh...
0: I mean, I really remember at this time, about 2004, around the European elections, uh, a UKIP party political broadcast, which featured, you know, a sort of Gary Bushel style kind of man of the people yelling about how the EU has two parliaments in Strasbourg and Brussels and how much it cost a British taxpayer to move furniture between the two of them. And uh, this was sped up. Uh, there was sped up footage of people moving furniture around to the Benny Hill music. Also and, from um, Southampton. Yes, another, another what a, what a city. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we just had like minor members of the cure in my hometown. But, um, you know, in my sort of like PTSD after the 2019 general election, when I sort of was thinking about all the sort of short, mid, and long term things that had been going on that had led us to the point of Boris Johnson securing this like crushing majority over Jeremy Corbyn, one of the things that came back to me in my sleepless nights was this UKIP advert from 2004. Um, And just thinking like, no, those people have won. That is British politics now.
2: But But, why did it all happen? I mean, this is the thing. You know, when you've got this kind of this this moment where actually there is quite a lot of money being put into public services, you know, there is a Labour government with gigantic majorities. Why they felt the need to do this It's kind of fascinating because, um, you know, this is also the era in which the Daily Mail becomes, I think, for the first time since, you know, Hurrah for the Blackshirts, becomes the best selling paper in the country. Yeah. Um, you know, overtakes the sun, overtakes the mirror and, and you know, it becomes absolutely dominant at that point. And that's quite odd. You know, you'd think at that point that everyone, you know, would be kind of you know, something like the mirror, you know, a kind of like broadly labor supporting, but crap paper would be the, the, the popular thing because we were in a labor but crap era. Mm. But instead, there's all of this, there's this kind of. You know, why why is it there? Why is there this need to, throughout that culture and things like Benefit Street and so forth, to kind of, you know, find the people at the bottom and and hit them over the head? Like
1: Well, because one, the authoritarianism of Thatcher doesn't get dislodged either. So I think this, you know, quite hardline way of viewing the world where it's like you're either someone that's worth something or you're utterly, totally worthless. Pony Blair doesn't dislodge that at all. So you're not looking at a more cuddly era by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, to sort of cement himself as a modernising, this ain't your granddad's labour figure. In 1997, one of the first things they do is they go all in on single moms and making life harder for single moms. I remember it really well because my mom was a single mom (laughs) at that time, Um, and you know she felt hugely relieved by the end of. What at that point was, what, 18 years of Tory rule? But I think there was something in her which felt quite wounded by that. I think the second thing is, you know, well, why wasn't it a time of, of great change or, or, or that increase in public spending resulting in a kind of society? You have to look at where the money went as well. Being born and raised in London, I was a huge beneficiary of a lot of that new labour money, particularly in education. One of the success stories of the 2000s was that in the UK's big cities, especially London, the racial attainment gap at primary school and secondary school level really, really closed. And that's because they just chucked money at those schools. You didn't get as much money going to, you know... The industrialized towns mm. and whatnot the jobs didn't come back to those places what there was was a sort of engine of regional inequality running which meant okay if you want to have some kind of chance at social mobility you have to leave your town you have to go to university you've got to take on that debt and then you've got to work in London or Manchester really. yeah
0: I mean I was really struck a couple of years ago I went on one of my like ridiculous football tours and I went to three towns and cities in the northeast. Um, so I went to Sunderland and I stayed with a friend in Newcastle and also spent um, half a day in Seam, a former mining town, um, about 10 minutes south of Newcastle on the train, I think. Um, Newcastle is the quintessential New Labour city, I think, along with Manchester. Oh, I in mean, you can... Slap me down in a second, but um you know mm. you can you can see a lot of new labour not well, Edinburgh exists, but well, yeah. yeah, okay, well, at least in England, um but you know Newcastle, you can see a lot of like infrastructure projects, cultural projects, yeah you know, Newcastle, I think did really well out of the new labour period in lots of ways uh, and was very much sort of built up as like the kind of regional hub in the northeast, and it's like if you want to have a life in the northeast, you either at least work in or move to Newcastle. Sunderland um, city center is, is really you a know, very kind of rundown place. It's quite desolate. You have the National Glass Center there. So you know the thing of kind of like putting a cultural center in a provincial city or town in the hope that that will sort of somehow regenerate the place to some extent. Uh, and then you have Seam, which was like a big mining center, but the, mine, the mines there went quite early. And that was just like very, very had clearly been, like, kicked very hard during the Thatcher period, kicked very hard during the current era of austerity. I mean, this was about 18 months ago. uh, And nothing really much was done for it during the New Labour era because the attitude was like, well, you can just go to Newcastle.
1: I mean, I think you sort of see, like, the New Labour thumbprints on a lot of the, you know, redevelopment projects of that era as well. And I'm going to get absolutely yelled at by listeners because I cannot remember where in Yorkshire it was, I have a feeling it might be Barnsley because that's near where my partner's family's from. Um, but the redevelopment plan for Barnsley was modeled on what if this looked more like a Tuscan market town?
2: And it's like a Tuscan market town. It was Barnsley.
1: It's like a Tuscan market town. You know, like there's a lot to love in Yorkshire, but it's a very, <laughs> very different kind of landscape kind of culture from Tuscany. But that was the image of aspiration. Right, no, you have a place in Tuscany. That's sophistication. Mm. That's what it means to be civilized. Well, have been it's just consulting
2: like, with Polly Toynbee specifically. <laughs> well, <laughs> they'll have a Pizza Express, and Pizza, you know, mm. you can link this to Pizza Express at all points. I think as the yeah. first attempt of like half decent Italian food on every high street.
0: I should also say that Polly Toynbee is always very quick and keen to point out that her villa is not in Tuscany; it's in Umbria. Um, <laughs> pizza Express, yeah, I mean you know that's that's a chain that's taken on very different resonances over the last kind of couple of years but but, but, but um, another
2: thing of like you know Italian references in the north I mean, I suppose that the you know the the kind of apologetic thing would be, of course, well, this has a history, which is you know the 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 high Victorian era, and everyone kind of reading Ruskin and then building gigantic Italian at town halls and so forth in that era, and the north kind of having this enormous sort of civic pride and and that there was anything. An attempt, I think, by the kind of very new labour-linked northern bourgeoisie to kind of relive that era in some way, to kind of have you know the north suddenly having this, this sense of pride. And, and and as a you know as 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 a sort of um, a liker of architecture, it, it did redress a lot of things that had happened both on the left and on the right in the nineteen eighties, which was a massive fear of cities. If you look at pretty much any housing scheme. Um, built in the 80s, whether it was by Barrett Homes or whether it was by a council and called Mandela Close, they all had semi-detached houses around cul-de-sacs because that's what the people want. And you had this incredibly kind of low density urbanism, like the stuff militant built in Liverpool is a classic example of this. It all has like massive perimeter walls down one side a lot of the time. And the only other place you find that is in you know Belfast and Derry where they've been put there to keep <laughs> one community away from the other. And they all have this kind of extremely paranoid fear of cities. And, and the new labor thing is motivated in huge part by, and this is the kind, of, the kind of nice side of it. If I was trying to construct like a nice new labor that's different from the sort of Anne Robinson and Kilroy new labor, it would be this. It's like, I think they all go on a jolly at some point to, you know, to France, to Italy, to the Netherlands, to Spain, particularly Spain. And are like, these are nice. They're governed by socialist parties and labor parties. And they've got these kind of lovely kind of riverside, you know, kind of cafes and, and cultural buildings and nice squares. And the cities feel nice. And, you know, Liverpool or, or Leeds or Manchester in you know, the late 80s didn't feel nice in that way. They, you know, they'd, they'd been very much kind of on the American model been sort of de-urbanized and suburbanized and kind of eviscerated. And a lot of it was about kind of trying to, you know, kind of build some sort of urbanism back into it. And, and that, you know, the end result is that they end up resembling in a way As European cities in the first place, which is that all the poor people are put on the outskirts Mm -hmm. and then they riot every few years. I mean, it's
1: interesting to me that the, you know, influence of the south of France and Spain, Italy is a lot more visible to me than the influence of the Netherlands, for instance. Because I often, you know, look at Amsterdam and I go, oh, we could have had a lot of this, right? We're, you know, not that different in climate. Amsterdam used to be a very, very car-dominated city. Now, obviously, famously, it's not... And particularly in Amsterdam Noord, you've got these estates which aren't just all huge high-rises plunked in the middle of no, There's lots of low-rises and shared communal gardens. And a lot of that was built by socialist architects after World War II. I've always found it really, really beautiful. Why is it that instinctively when in the 2000s you're looking at redeveloping Barnsley, we go Tuscan market town and not <laughs> maybe a bit like what they've got in the Netherlands?
2: I think there's a kind of cultural cringe that, that that's part of it, you know, that 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 um, just feeling a little bit embarrassed about where they're from. But um, I mean, there's some Dutch influence in there, like you know, I think of like the Dutch architects that they got into to redevelop Birmingham Central Library um, into a much bigger but also much stupider new library. And but that but I think a lot of why they all look like they do. Uh, 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 you know, it comes more from this kind of thing that runs through that era of trying to do social democratic things by so, by that right means. So you know, everything's done via kind of privatization by letting developers do what they like in a certain place. So in the John Major era, developers were allowed to do what they like, you know, on on the far western outskirts of London, and that's where you know that kind of corridor going out towards Oxford and so forth, and that's where all the investment was. And, With with New Labour, there's this kind of concerted effort to kind of shift it into the east of London, shift it to the north, shift it to Scotland and South Wales. Um, But rather than it being done in the way that it would be done in the Netherlands, of it having a huge amount of regulation, of the public sector having a major role, of it being very much about kind of taming cars and having a lot of public transport investment, um, you basically ask Barrett Homes to build you Bilbao. And that's that's kind of what happened in Leeds and Newcastle and and a lot of you know East London like Stratford. Um, oh, and you talk there about this idea of sort of social
0: democratic ends by Thatcherite means. Um, is it? I want to sort of move the conversation on a bit to you know the sort of discourse around Chav's and class consciousness and ASBOs. and we can also talk about how young people in particular were treated politically at this time because it you know. It was, it was frankly really appalling. Um, and we talked about the kind of class hatred that ran through a lot of um, 2000s culture. Uh, and it might be interesting to think a bit about kind of comedy shows now rather than things like sort of game shows and reality shows. But, you know, it seems to me my, my feeling is that class consciousness was, was, you know, at a relatively low ebb at this point, if not a historic low. I wonder what
2: you think about that as, as something that feeds into the culture of the time. I mean, I, th- I think there was there was a class consciousness, but it was a kind of um, a sort of resentment-filled kind of petty bourgeois consciousness, and a lot of it was aimed. It was aimed at those those above and below. Mm. So on the one hand, you know, it's aimed at uh, you know at so-called chavs and so forth. It's aimed at the people that can't get on the property ladder and so forth, and can't participate in the sort of wonderful consumer culture that runs through all of that period. Um, but it's also aimed at elites. And again, this is another bit of kind of, you know, epoch dreaming its successor. It's aimed at cultural elites. Um, and that happens within the cultural elites. That's the thing. You know, you get things like, you know, the idea that you could have had something like Play for Today or what have you, or, mm. you know, insert kind of improving BBC2 or Channel 4 thing here. The idea that you could have had that becomes completely ridiculed at that point, And you yeah. have much the same sort of people that would have put on at one point, you know, kind of Sin um, The Singing Detective that instead putting on Benefit Street. And that's done, that's always phrased why why you could, when you would argue with those people at the time, which I remember well, because I did argue with those people at the time and they were insufferable, um, was always very much kind of like, oh, wow, that's not what the people want. You Mm. know, that's real people want Benefit Mm. Street. They don't want your Dennis Potter plays. They want to be rubbed in shit. So that is a class consciousness of a sort. And so it's kind of, And it's weird, again, that an era where you have this kind of massive expansion of university education throughout this time Mm. has such enormous hatred and suspicion of anything resembling intellectuals, Well, more than any other era.
1: I was thinking about this and comparing uh, British comedy of the time to American comedy at the time, because... Growing up, there was nothing my mum hated more than Americans. She really fucking hated Americans. She hated American TV. She hated American movies. She specifically hated American children. She thought that they were insufferable. Um, She wouldn't let me watch anything with Macaulay Culkin in it because she was like, I've never seen a child that I want to kick out of window before. Bear in mind, she worked in child protection her whole life as well.
0: So she thought Donald Trump wasn't the worst person in the Home Alone film.
1: No, she did not think that he was the worst person. She really, really loathed American culture. I mean, I think like... You know, inside this North London social worker was like a little Gaddafi waiting to get out. But that's a whole separate story. So I was never allowed to watch things like Jackass Mm. or American Pie. So these were things I then had to watch in secret with my friends. And it was that era of sort of frat boy gross out humor Mm. of who could do the most stupid, self-destructive, disgusting thing. And I think that we had our own form of gross out humor, but there was a lot more cruelty to it. It wasn't we all participate in Mm -hmm. doing this disgusting thing because it makes us feel a kind of fraternal bond. It was very much about jabbing the finger at someone else who is disgusting. And I wonder if that's British media industry looks at what's going on in America and then pulls it through this uniquely British lens because we are so much more aware of class and class distinction than they are in the States. And and
2: that precedes it, right? You know, things like Ricky Lake and Jerry Springer come first, and Mm. these are our kind of like horrible kind of like viz character version.
1: No, exactly, exactly. And I, I, I sort of, in its own way, Jackass and American Pie was an expression of elite American culture, right? It's about those lovely suburbs producing men who go and join fraternities and then like commit horrible acts of sexual degradation in the name of getting a really good legal career later down the line. I mean, that's that's <laughs> the story of the American class structure. But for us, it was sort of about animating distinction between those who are capable of discernment, capable of being part of this, you know, modern forward thinking world and those who are just, you know, that kind of weird sludge that you get between Pavement and gutter.
0: And yeah, and I want to talk about the kind of decline of the idea of cultural democracy at this time. I and mean, we've, we've touched on it already. Um, but, you know, something I, when I was still on Twitter, would do quite a lot would just go through the BBC or Channel 4 or even ITV listings from a certain point uh, in the post war period and just pick out some highlights of what was being broadcast. Um, and this is just taken from an article I wrote on um, uh, Adam Curtis's film Can't Get You Out of My Head um, but I wrote that in the first week of June 1992 which was when Curtis's first series Pandora's Box was first broadcast uh, there was an open space strand where the public could make programs of their own and there was a really interesting and incredibly popular exhibition at London's Raven Row Gallery recently of all the open door programs well, one at all but huge selection of the open door programs from the 1970s where people could make programs about a subject of their choosing and um, be given the means to do so. So there was that open space strand. There were, you know, documentaries on the failure of the Green Revolution in India, about the nature of post-communist Czechoslovakia and the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich during the Second World War. Um, the author Tony Morrison appeared on The Late Show. Uh, there was a set of films on culture and identity from a black perspective. Showcases for new filmmakers, documentary on the troubles in Northern <laughs> it makes Ireland. Makes me sick to
2: see how far um, we've done fell.
0: And daily open university content, and the open university content is interesting because that kind of disappears round about the time of the Blair government opening up access to university, but you know saddling you with with debt to do it and taking away um, student grants. Um, and you know this is a period it feels where like knowledge itself becomes far more
2: gatekept. You know, remembering that time being, you know, in the sort of small clique of university educated people with blogs that I was in in the mid 2000s. So speaking just as, you know, I'm not sure how much this is true in a wider sense. But one thing I, I, I very much remember about that time is there was a certain amount of voting with your feet going on. I didn't have a TV with a TV license, like, a, you know, not a TV you watch DVDs on, but a TV with a TV license in which you watch telly between 2003 and the pandemic. And that's true of a lot of people I know my age. And because it was just this constant slurry, you know, it was just absolute garbage. And so there was just no, and you could, on the other hand, you know, um, buy or borrow from a friend, a DVD of an actually quite good, usually American show, or you could watch on YouTube, all of this culture from the seventies and eighties that we're supposed to have forgotten about, and so we all did that instead. Like a huge amount of this kind of list of, of you know, Juliet's uh, kind of list of um, of TV shows on the, uh, uh, for, for us. And apart from Big Brother, in which I remember watching the first series, I've not watched any of them because I would just kind of, or rather, I would kind of watch in you know, a couple of minutes of them, and be mm. like, hell no, <laughs> you know. Yeah, same. Um So. Even before sort of streaming happens, and these things all do move onto the internet, and you do have this then much more di- sort of dispersed kind of niche form of, of of media consumption, this is already happening. You know, you already have a whole load of people that are just not watching this stuff anymore.
1: Something which I wanted to talk about when I was thinking about you know what defines the two thousands for me, I was thinking about that book called Female Chauvinist Pigs, which I. Th- think got a lot of stuff wrong and um, what female chauvinist pigs was about was reflecting on what she called raunch culture of the 2000s which is sort of girls gone wild and video vixens and page three and in her analysis of it she says well this is sex positive feminism just lurching straight back into the You know satisfying of the male gaze right you're tricking yourself into thinking it's liberation whereas actually all you're doing is making yourself sexually available for men and the thing which she misses in that and something which perhaps the radical feminists of earlier decades got right is how much coercion was involved Mm. for a lot of that content i mean i remember the reality show which was about the girls of the playboy mansion Now, a lot of them are coming out and saying, well, our access to money was controlled. It was sexually really, really degrading. Sure, I was being held up as a figure of fun and a degree of uh, sexual self-ownership, but that was the opposite of my reality. Same with Girls Gone Wild. Now you've got lots of people saying, I could not have consented Mm -hmm. to making that content. And so again, I think it shows a way in which even... The self-appointed custodians of cultural discernment were getting that wrong. You either participated in that culture or you sneered at it because the people who were doing it were stupid. Mm. You didn't look that closely at the absence of choice in how it was being made.
0: Yeah. And you're very much discouraged, to think, exactly about the structures in which it exists. Um I mean, I, I often think of Russell Brand as my sort of emblematic figure of this time. Uh, yeah. I mean, I always, from the very off, his appearance and his voice, even before you got onto what he said or did, were just like fingernails down a blackboard to me. And I don't think I've ever met a queer person who didn't have that reaction to him. Um, so, you know, he emphatically wasn't for me or for people like me. Um, you know, it was very much being built up as like a kind of working class hero um and you know it was widely known within the industry at the time it turns out to um have some sort of questionable um practices around women you know to me he just sort of epitomized kind of the way counterculture had been bought out and just turned into kind of like vapid celebrity and ultimately collapsed um and of course now he's taken a sort of quite conspiracist uh turn and uh, is very happy to kind of pal about with people like Tucker Carlson and other people on the far right. Uh, so for me, I think he is a very you know, interesting kind of
2: case study in the culture of the 2000s and what's happened to it since. I mean, that link between, you know, sort of uh, what the young people have decided to call indie sleaze and the far right is pretty well established, given Gavin McInnes, the founder of Vice, is, you know, now a sort of leader of a minor... Comedy fascist bullying, movement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, they're the no wanks one, right? Uh, f- God, I can't remember. So ironic given the way they made the money. Okay. Um, but that, 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 you know, one that, of <laughs> my enduring memories of the early 2000s is of going to toilets at parties and there being copies of Vice and just feeling physical revulsion. Uh, the, and there's an exhibition currently running. I might have finished, but um, I think it's still running at, 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 at Tate Britain called Women in Revolt. Um, which some listeners may or may not already be be, be aware of, and, and it's, I was kind of fascinated by this because it was all of the it, you know without it being the kind of BBC Play for Today kind of official culture, it was all of the stuff that had been kind of stomped on by this you know that kind of like ninety seven to two thousand and eight let's say culture. Had, had just kind of somehow kind of like thrown all of that into the dustbin of history. And there it was all back, you know, all of that kind of, you know, the the, 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 the kind of radical feminist culture, but also, you know, not in a kind of, you know, Andrea talking way, but this kind of huge kind of cultural thing that reached into pop culture and reached into politics and the municipal politics and into, you know, all sorts of levels of people's lives that was huge, particularly in the 80s, where it's just completely kind of ridiculed and disappeared. And you would go to that show and it would, and, 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 you know, kind of, kind of like the political movement we were all in for a few years. It was either people who were 25 or it's people who were there, who were like in their 70s that could actually remember that culture. And that's who you could, who would see walking around.
1: Just to bring it back to that sort of era of like vice guys and Russell Brand, it wasn't that obvious to me at the time what they would turn out to be. And that's because... I remember being a teenager, and a lot of the guys I was hanging out with, they were looking for a model of masculinity, which was less laddie, less macho, less overbearing. At that time, being called gay was widespread. It was always derogatory. And men like Russell Brand, it felt that they turned it on its head and went, so what? You know, you can call me gay as much as you want, but doesn't matter if I am or if I'm not. I'm gonna lean I'm gonna lean into it. I'm gonna sort of play up to being read as effeminate. And sure, now I'm an adult, I can look back and go, hmm, maybe basing a new form of masculinity around the consumption of cocaine doesn't produce <laughs> good guys. But at the time it wasn't obvious to me at all. Mm-hmm. It felt very different from what else was in the culture and what felt available to me as a teenage girl in terms of what kind of guy I could be interested in. And then I learned the hard way, like a lot of girls my age learned the hard way, that men in skinny jeans can be sex offenders too.
0: That's the pull quote for the episode, I think. Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, so I want to sort of move the conversation on a bit uh, and talk about the the kind of legacy of this stuff, the long-term consequences. You know, there was a realisation towards the end of the 2000s of just how cruel uh, and full of class hatred this stuff was. Um, So I'm thinking of um, Owen Jones's book Chavs, of course, Lindsay Hanley's book Estates, uh, even Judy Birchall writing about the Chav discourse and how class contemptuous that was um in 2008 the united nations ordered new labor to regulate against the exploitation of children in reality tv uh, looking at a super nanny in particular you know and at the same time obviously you get the financial crash and the coming of austerity and the rise of uh, far right politics through the british national party and the uk independence party and their appearances on bbc question time uh, so i wonder how much we can talk about maybe not so much the end of this sort of cultural cruelty as just it's, you know, turning into big P politics?
1: The first thing is that when you measure the decline of the use of the word chav, you see a parallel increase in the use of the phrase white working class. So (laughs) one anxiety gets turned straight into another, and the same individuals who railed against chavs and called them, you know, subhuman and disgusting, and all of that in the pages of the Daily Mail. Switched right to the white working class have been neglected, they've been looked down upon for too long, they've been spat on, they've had enough of it. Right? I'm I'm almost quoting verbatim from a Melanie Phillips article. So one preoccupation got turned straight into another. In terms of the cruelty of television, I think there has been a real recognition that there's something unacceptable about it it's not that it's gone away, it's just that we've become a lot less honest about its role in our popular culture. So a lot of that sort of point and gawk and look how disgusting this person is, that takes place on YouTube, Mm -hmm. takes place on social media. The tabloid practice of picking someone, whether that was Amy Winehouse or Britney Spears, and making them go mad so that you could film and document their nervous breakdown we just do that to randoms on the internet, I think. That's you know a big part of what Twitter is. So I don't think that the cruelty has gone away. We are just much more inclined to dressing it up as a form of justice mm. on social media. The uh, humiliation, the voyeurism, I think that's still there.
0: I mean, maybe to just sort of talk about you know, we we talked earlier about the way a lot of this culture of the two thousands really laid the way for the politics of the twenty ten, the sort of top-down imposition of austerity. And I wonder if we should just sort of spend a bit more time um considering that. You know, it certainly, as we've just talked about, makes makes a sense that maybe mainstream television has become slightly less cruel or in a slightly different way. Mainstream culture has. Um, you know, Ash, as you say, this stuff is all sort of You know, push to what you attempted to kind of say is the margins, but it's quite hard to say if it's the margins anymore. I feel like culture is a lot more decentralized now. Um,
2: But I feel that that talking about a mainstream doesn't quite work in a way because I think what a lot of this, especially in terms of TV and in terms of sort of magazine media, you know, this is being the emergence of very, very short lived but very, very successful things like sort of, you know, zoo and nuts and heat and so forth. is this is the time in which the mainstream destroys itself. Yeah. You know, the mainstream becomes so kind of like awful and grotesque and kind of unbearable that a lot of people, not everyone by any means, but a lot of people just kind of opt out of it. Mm-hmm. And, they, and you know, even before the technology is there for them to go online, they you know, they, they disappear off into the internet. So I don't really, you know, the, the, the BBC or Channel 4 might be less disgusting nowadays, but it doesn't really matter because that's not what people are watching or not what people are doing. You know, that... That sort of, that that, that mainstream culture of sort of, you know, big TV and big media and so forth just doesn't, or if it's consumed, it's mainly consumed. And this causes its own problems, mainly consumed by the elderly. Mm. Mm.
1: I mean, I think on the austerity point, just to put it very bluntly, if you spend well over a decade insisting from every corner of culture that benefits are only for disgusting people, makes it very easy to attack them. Yeah. And suddenly you realise that benefits weren't only for disgusting people, that you relied on the welfare state as well, and now it's gone. It's just that simple.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's very palpable um, how the you know, real um, kind of destruction of um, the ideas of cultural democracy and of culture as something that you know, reflects the lives of you know, quote-unquote ordinary people rather than the sort of very... Um, upper class dominated culture that we have now, the collapse of kind of ideas of counterculture, of popular intellectualism, um, have really led to just the type of politics and the type of politicians we have now. You know, it's likely that, you know, sometime within the next 12 months, um, Sakir Starmer Casey is going to come Prime Minister and is very much uh, an inheritor of um of Blairism and, you know, several Key figures such as uh, island visitor Peter Mandelson are very much involved with the project. Um, it's very likely that Starmer uh, will become prime minister. And a man who, you know, kind of grew up reading like James Elroy and listening to our Juice, but who pretends that his favorite song is Three Lions by the Lightning Seeds and Skinner and Badil uh, is going to become uh, prime minister. I wonder how much of a return to this type of culture we might
2: expect. I'm sort of sceptical because I think what he's trying to do is be a sort of, you know, sort of stern nineteen forties patriarch. You know, like I think that 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 that, that the, the kind of, you know, I hated all of the culture of the two thousands, and I, I this isn't in any way sort of I'm supposed to be speaking for it, but it, there was a sort of a sort of glee to it. It was full of sort of awful jouissance. It was mm. full of like terrible, terrible enjoyment of other people's misfortune and, and, and horror. And it reveled in, 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 you know, kind of nastiness and bodily fluids and whatnot. Um, Starmer's not enjoying anything. He's not enjoying kicking people. He's not enjoying, you know, doing something nice. He's not enjoying anything at all. Um, and I think that's more <laughs> what you're going to get. I don't think you'll see a return of Blairite culture. I don't think it, there's, there's any kind of, I don't think there's any call for it. And I don't think his, own, as you say, his own interests culturally are not that at all. He has the typical interests of a, the sort of person who in the mid 80s joined a niche Trotskyist sect, which he did. You know, he likes obscure indie rock and northern soul, he likes experimental Scottish novels, and he plays in a five-side football team. He's you. <gasps>
1: <sighs> Bodied. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever think in the history of Navarra Media we've recorded a murder before. (laughs) Just to be very clear to listeners who can't see, uh, Owen did point at Julia and not me.
0: (coughs) That was Navarra FM. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Sakia Starmer and I both from uh, East Surrey, both... uh, Formerly at, uh, right, at grammar school, um, both talk a bit like Alan Partridge. Yeah, he is me, you're right. Um, I don't think I can ever say anything ever again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to. It just came out. What was that about? Terrible enjoyment and cruelty? Yeah.
0: <laughs> we are all products of the 2000s, clearly. I mean, I, I also really think that it's not
1: going to come back because, as you said, culture is a lot more decentralized now. And I think where you see cruelty being meted out, it does have to come dressed up in a form of moral righteousness, which claims a position of victimhood or marginality. And sometimes that's fair enough. Sometimes it's completely deranged when some guy's been ghosting women in New York City, and then he's, you know, called a sexual predator. I mean, that's a form of extreme social shaming but this guy is very much coded as middle class like even if he's still a renter and you know not got loads of money that's not someone who is being coded as underclass working class so I think that the nature of cruelty and who it's targeting it has to be justified within the framework of liberal identity politics now. I mean I think that we have also in our desire to dig into the misery of the 2000s We've missed out on the things which I think so archetypically 2000s. It's like if I see a Jane Norman bag, it transports me back in time physically. I think about Enfield Town shopping center. I think about girls with the little Nike Just Do It backpacks. And I do have a great deal of nostalgia for it. Like I know that a lot of this stuff was shit, but that's also when I was a teenager and was discovering fun for the first time.
2: Right. Do you have any on. nostalgia for anything from the Sarah Do all? I
0: have any nostalgia for anything from do the you 2000s? Miss anything from that
2: place? Um... I don't miss 2000s football.
0: I don't miss 2000s music. I don't miss 2000s television. I certainly don't miss 2000s film. It was a really poor period for cinema. Don't miss 2000s literature. I particularly don't miss (laughs) 2000s fashion.
2: Um, No, I don't think I do. I in a banning flounce of a skirt.
1: Come on! <laughs> it's the time
2: in which the asymmetric fringe, for a while, came back in fashion. As someone that's always had one since I was six years old, it was nice to be fashionable for about eighteen months. I had one of them. I guess like one thing that was interesting for me was that growing up in the nineties,
0: but being very into like eighties music, being very into like Depeche Mode, Talking Heads, New Order, all things that were really not so fashionable during the nineties, and then quite a lot of other eighties music like Soft Cell and The Human League it was considerably less fashionable than that. This weird thing that happens in the early 2000s where the cultural churn meant that became fashionable again.
1: Uh, uh, that was a weird yeah. moment where
0: I was like, oh, do people like what I like? And I remember bumping into it like in about 2006 in Brighton, bumping into a couple of guys who I'd been at school with in Hawley who would like relentlessly mocked me for listening to like Joy Division or Public Image Limited um, in the sort of mid to late 90s. We're like, oh, we moved to Brighton and like, all the cool people liked everything that you like. And I was just like, yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? So
2: a few years um, back, The Guardian had an article about a nightclub which ran at the end of Tottenham Court Roads for a few years in the late 90s, early 2000s called Trash. And what then came out is every single journalist born between 1975 and 1985 in Britain all were like, oh, I used to go to Trash. I used to go to Trash. Everyone you like went to trash. I never went you to went trash. You went to trash. Yeah. Um, well, you weren't living in London. No. If you, if you were, you would most definitely have done so. And saying I'm nostalgic for that period is difficult because it was a period itself based on nostalgia. So you're in this kind of loop of nostalgia yeah. for nostalgia for nostalgia. Um, but, you know, am I nostalgic for first hearing "Emerged" by Fisher Spooner in a nightclub at like 1 a.m.? It was fun. It was lots of fun. <laughs> like that was loads of fun. And everyone looked really good. And they didn't in the 90s, you know, the, the, that kind of like, mm-hmm. I think there's, 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 you know, you could kind of trace a thread but the way in the last few years, you know, uh, certain kinds of kind of queerness have been, become more sort of socially acceptable, more kind of, I mean, what was the scene? And, and I think that, you know, which, that kind of like mid to late 90s culture of sort of oasis and blur mm-hmm. really kind of kicked that to death. And it's sort of gradual reemergence. like one of the pivotal points in it is emerged by Fisher Spooner and (laughs) Fisher Spooner and their hair. The queerness, the sort of synthetic music, you know, the kind of um, people sort of dancing around in funny outfits. It sort of came back for a bit then. And I think in a way that was just, you know, a sort of distant echo of people watching Liquid Sky and wishing Mm -hmm. they were in New York in 1981. But I do think the best thing I could say about it is it kind of laid the foundations for the fact that you can you know, you can now go around London looking weird and you're much, much later get, get your head kicked in than you were in 2000. That's as that's as near as it's going to get. Fisher Spooner is my nostalgia for 2000s. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, that was Navara FM. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Owen, Ash, thank you very much.
2: Cheers. you
1: journalism and set up a regular donation to navara media from just one pound a month head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences